All right, let's get to work trying to understand what's going on here. Whenever you read your Bible, whenever you read it, whenever you study it, whenever you listen to preaching, whatever section you read, you should be asking this question, what is the tone or flavor of the section that I'm reading? There's always a flavor. Some passages of Scripture feel and sound very differently than other passages of Scripture. So the question we're asking of this one is, what's the flavor of this passage? How does it make you feel? We're not talking about even what it means yet. We're just talking about what's the flavor of what Jesus is saying here. And we'll cut right to the chase. And we'll say that the flavor of this section is hard. It's hard. He's, he's using the language over and over again of hatred. We like love. He was talking about love. Last section, right? He kept saying love and love and love over and over again. Now, he says, if the world hates you, why are they going to hate us, Jesus? If the disciples learn anything from this section of Jesus' talk, they learn that following Jesus is hard. They learn that following Jesus will cost you. Jesus, over and over and over again, told people to count the cost before they determined they would be followers. The disciples should realize, every would-be disciple should realize, every single one of us who is proclaiming Christ, who is in Christ, who would identify as a Christian, needs to realize once again in a fresh way that following Jesus, bearing fruit, is hard. Jesus is ultimately saying, listen, when it gets hard, I don't want you to be surprised at that. He's getting ready to leave. He doesn't want them to be caught off guard when they begin to experience challenge in trying to follow him and find, trying to follow his teachings. He tells us what his purpose is in writing. He, he says it so clear. Look at chapter 16, verse 1. He stated his purpose. Why did he say these things? I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Look at verse 4. He said, but I have said these things to you that when their hour, what does he mean by that? When the things that he's describing begin to happen to you, when that begins to happen, you may remember that I told them to you. Jesus' intent here is very clear to eliminate the surprise factor. Giving it to you straight. Following Jesus is going to be hard. Following Jesus is going to cost you. For some, it will actually cost you your life. And he's saying, and even in that, don't be caught off guard. Don't be surprised at this. Don't be surprised, Brandywine Grace. Don't be surprised, friends, that though we employ the secrets that God has given us to bear fruit, that there will come obstacles to bearing fruit. We shouldn't be caught off guard by this. 
In fact, we should strangely be encouraged if we're experiencing some obstacles in trying to live for Jesus because that's an indicator that you actually are living for Jesus. If you want to bear fruit, church, and we do want to bear fruit, don't we? If you want to bear fruit, Jesus is saying, I want it to be clear what you're in for. I want it to be clear what you're in for. There are obstacles. Amy's mom, Allie, who many of you know, great gardener. Ever since I've known her, I've known her a long time. Always has a garden and always has a a great garden. She's been at it for a long time. Every home they've ever owned, Beautiful gardens. Now, you might say that she has a green thumb. I mean, you would be right. You might say that she's gifted with gardening, and that would be true. And if you talked to her, even for a minute, about gardening, you would experience her joy and her passion. But you would be mistaken if you came away thinking that having a beautiful garden didn't cost her in some way. I said this week, I asked her to write down a list of all the obstacles you have to deal with in having a beautiful garden. She sent it to me. I'll read you some. Obstacles. These are all obstacles to having a beautiful garden. Time. You've got to put time into this. See, right away, that's why I don't have a beautiful garden. <laughs> I, I couldn't pass the first obstacle. You've got to have time. You've got to be vigilant. And it requires a lot of care. Then she lists the resources. You've got to have space. You've got to have tools. You've got to have a good location. You've got you to test the soil pH. You gotta have light. Your your garden has to be in a place where there's light. You have to have a good location. You have to prepare the ground and the soil. You have to have a source of water. You have to have water to have a garden. Then she talks about these goals. You have to establish goals. Like, do you wanna have a fruit garden? Do you wanna have flowers? Do you wanna have a cash crop? Do you want just a landscape? Are you just trying to create a view? There's beauty, you gotta think about all these things. Then she just starts rattling off obstacles. The weather will, will fight against you. Weeds. Weeds. They always kill my garden before I ever get going. Why is it that weeds grow so easily and everything I'm trying to grow grows so hard? Wildlife, rabbits, raccoons. And she says you got to deal with disappointment. Like sometimes the things that you, you wanted to see, you don't ever see. You don't ever realize I'm disappointed you got to be willing to problem solve. You're constantly, that didn't work out. Why didn't that work out? i got to figure that out. Neighbors. I don't know what she means by that. <laughs> you have to ask her that. I'm not aware of anybody showing up and trying to burn her garden down at night. But I don't know. You got the issue of genetics. And then last night we were together and we were just driving, we were, we were talking while we were driving down the road. And she said, you know what else you got to deal with? You got to deal with failure. Like it's one of the obstacles. Like sometimes the things you try, you actually fail. 
When it comes to having a nice landscaped yard, it'll cost you. You're going to have to deal with some obstacles or you're going to have to pay somebody to deal with the obstacles. Somebody's going to have to deal with the obstacles. It doesn't just happen. That's why so many people don't have nice gardens. If it was easy, everybody would do it. There are obstacles to bearing fruit in your physical garden. And so there are obstacles to bearing fruit spiritually. And evidently, there's a hostile nature to some of the obstacles to bearing fruit spiritually. In fact, we might say it this way. It's there are more dangerous obstacles to bearing fruit for Jesus than there are to growing a nice vegetable garden in your backyard. Now let's remember, we define bearing fruit. What is bearing fruit? It's this image that Jesus uses for the good results coming from the life of a believer, bringing benefit to the lives of others and advancing the work of God in the world. Remember, bearing fruit is always talking about in the context of mission. He's talking in the context of making disciples. And what he told us, last week we saw this, God chose us, God elected us, God saved us, God transformed us, God redeemed us. For what purpose? The purpose of bearing fruit. And the fruit is primarily the fruit that emerges from spreading the fame of Jesus, from spreading the good news about Jesus. The fruit is new converts to the faith. But Jesus is saying is we've been so blessed with salvation. If you're in Christ, you have been blessed. You've been blessed with salvation. You've been blessed by his grace that has saved you. You could never save yourself. Jesus saved us by his grace. You've been blessed by this redemption. You've been blessed by revelation. He's given you his word. He's given you his spirit. You've been blessed with understanding. So that we want to share all that we have experienced to win other people to our side. To Jesus' side. The love that joins us to Jesus. The love that joins us to Jesus. Is never intended for us to become a wholly exclusive huddle that only we share in. That is not why Jesus has saved us, to, to become this little enclave unto ourselves. Jesus saved us. We were lost, and Jesus rescued us. And now, from that, that privileged place of grace, he invites us to go rescue more people. This is not... Becoming a Christian is not, bearing fruit is not some invitation to just become comfortable and to kind of sequester ourselves and to avoid any trial, like the kinds of trials that Jesus is describing here. It's not what it is. 
Too often, though, and we're going to talk about this the next couple weeks, too often, though, it's easy to get tempted into thinking that that's what we need, that that's what we should do. Our union with Christ is a union that seeks to bring others into its orb. But there are obstacles. So let's talk. Let's, let's do two things. Let's talk about the obstacle that Jesus is referring to. So let's identify the obstacle, and then let's talk about how to deal with the obstacle. So if you're a note taker, we're going to identify the obstacle, and then we're going to talk about how to deal with the obstacle. Let's start with identify. Identify the obstacle to bearing fruit. Jesus comes right out and says it, doesn't he? Our union with Christ creates a gospel community. A communi- it, it creates this community of love. But it's a community that stands over against the world. And we experience opposition. There's this opposition because there's really only two teams as Jesus sees it. You're either on team Jesus, and you only get on that team by grace. Remember that. But there's this opposition that exists between team Jesus and team world, we'll call it. He talks about the world. He keeps saying the word world over and over and over and over again. And, and that opposition between team Jesus, if you're in Christ, and the team world creates these obstacles to living the fruit-bearing life that he's called us to live. And while we could discuss all kinds of sociological reasons for the opposition that exists between Christians and the world, that's not what Jesus offers. Jesus doesn't offer sociological reasons for for why that opposition exists. Jesus' reasons for the obstacle, the source of the opposition, are theological. And the defining word he uses for the opposition that Christians will face in the world is hatred. I don't like that word. I just want to get along with everybody. And the word... He uses, that he begins using in this section, is in stark contrast to the word he uses in the previous section. Look in your Bibles at verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. Verse 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. That's what's ringing in the disciples' ears. Then he changes gears. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember, I always tell you to pay attention to someone when they repeat themselves. Pay special attention to Jesus when he repeats himself. He said, love, 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 love. And then in contrast, he says, hate, 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 hate. 
the legacy Jesus leaves the world, the legacy he leaves us is his word, his spirit, and his peace, his joy, and his love. What does the world leave Jesus in return? Scorn, rejection, and hatred. Now, let's make sure we, we understand some things as it relates to the world and how Christians are to relate to the world because the most famous passage of the Bible written by John, John 3.16, tells us that God so loved the what, church? The world. He so loved the world. Gave himself. God loves the world. That same writer writing in 1 John, those are letters, 1st and 2nd, 3rd John, same writer, he says to Christians, do not love the world or the things of this world. How are we to understand world? How are we supposed to love the world in the sense that that God loves the world? And how are we supposed to not love the world or the things of this world? Well, maybe that's a sermon for another day. But when Jesus talks about the world, what does he mean? The Greek word, cosmos. This is what he means. The created moral order in rebellion against God. The created moral order in rebellion against God. So when we see him using the language of the world here, he's talking about all of creation that was created mercifully and kindly by God that has rebelled against God. Well, who does that include? Everybody. Everybody. And the ultimate reason for the world's hatred of Jesus is that he told us in chapter 7 of the same book. He said, the world hates me because I've testified that its deeds are evil. You don't like it when someone gives it to you that straight. (laughs) The world doesn't like it. The world has shaken its fist at God and rebelled against him. And Jesus is saying that everybody that follows him will be hated by the same world. The same world that hated him for testifying that its deeds were evil is going to hate you. Partly because they are associated with the supreme supreme one who's been hated by the world. And partly because as a Christian, you begin to increase in the conformity of your life to look more and more like Jesus, which is what he's doing. If you're a Christian, he's making you, he's conforming you more and more into the image of Christ. That means you're growing in your knowledge of Christ. That means you're growing in your love for Christ. That means you're growing in your passion and obedience to to Christ. And that, when that happens, as that continues to happen, you will grow increasingly sideways with the world that hates the one that you're becoming like. 
If you're a Christian, a true believer, saved by grace, and now grace is starting to produce fruit in your life, you are going to appear alien to the world. Why? Because the world loves its own. This is not some kind of sociological comment about our inborn suspicion of strangers. This is a moral condemnation. The world is a society of rebels and therefore finds it hard to tolerate those who are in joyful allegiance to their king to whom all loyalty is due. There's so much I could say here, church. There's so much to misunderstand here. We got two weeks, so we'll take a look at this next week too. Christians don't belong to the world. Not because we never belong to the world, but because Jesus chose us out of the world. Oh, church, we got to keep that straight. We don't belong to the world, not because we never belong to the world, but because Jesus snatched us out of the world. If you're on Team Jesus, it wasn't because you were a great player. It wasn't because you had a nice jump shot and everybody else didn't. What's crazy is that Jesus picked me for the team. What's crazy is that Jesus Pick some of you for the team. <laughs> Let's just be honest. There's people you wouldn't have picked. But God, because of his great love for us, loved us when we were unlovely and chose us out of the world, out of millions lost, We don't belong to the world any longer. It's not because we never belonged. It's because we've been chosen by Christ out of the world. You could say it this way. You've, by God's grace, you have switched sides. You have switched teams. You used to wear the jersey of the world. But now you wear the jersey of Team Jesus. And it's all because of Jesus that you're alive. It's all because of Jesus that you have switched teams. There is absolutely no room for an attitude of superiority or proud arrogance in the mind of a Christian. We ought to be the most humble people in the world because we recognize that we were part of the world and by something extraordinary, something alien to us, the, 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 the power and grace of God opened our eyes and helped us to see that we desperately needed him. We needed a savior and he, and he saved us. If you were once a captain 
of team world. Now you've quit that team to join team Jesus. And the other team going to hate you for that. So what's the obstacle, team? (laughs) Hatred of the world. Your newfound alien status has made the world feel about you the way it feels about Jesus. Remember, Jesus said this. He said in verse 20, a servant is not greater than his master. He told them that in in verse 16, actually, of, of, of chapter 13, he said that the, uh, a servant is not greater than a master. And, and what he was saying there was it was in the context of washing their feet. So the principle there was humility. He's saying, listen, if the master was content to wash the servant's feet, it's pathetically unbecoming for disciples to scramble for positions of honor. He's saying, if, if I'm the master overall and I wash your feet and I lay my life down for you, how much more should your life be characterized by humility? Now, the context is different. Now, the principles applied to persecution. And he's saying, if they persecuted me, you're going to get it too. That's why we like to think of of Christianity as a salad bar. There's parts I select I'd like to pick, and there's parts I'd like to leave behind. Give me a little more of that loving stuff. But this persecution stuff, I'm hoping that somebody else will take a nice big dish of that. Those who preach the gospel, those who proclaim the gospel, those who decide to live for Jesus, those who love Jesus, those who follow Jesus, and their lives begin to conform to his beauty, and and your life begins to bear fruit for his glory, and you begin to spread his fame, will attract the antagonism of the world the same way that Jesus did. Who wants some? (laughs) I'm giving it to you straight. Friends, this is unavoidable. If you follow Jesus, you're going to get sideways with the world. What this teaching demands is an evaluation of your relationship to the world. And this is where it gets complex. Have you ever tried to play for both teams at once? Go try that. Go get on the basketball court down here at Curve Park. And play for, just say, yo, 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 let me, let me play, let me play. And someone picks you up on a team. I got next. You know, you jump in. And then you start playing for both teams. People going to be scratching their head. You can't do that. You can't score baskets for both teams. Unless you're my daughter Sylvia in her first basketball game. I had to get your attention, so. Have you been trying to follow Jesus but maintain friendship with the world that demands you you compromise your allegiance to Jesus? You won't go far. R.C. Sproul, if you've made friends with the world, you must have done it by compromising Christ. What other ways you have compromised Christ? 
Has the love of Christ so gripped you that you're following him in such a way that it's somehow gotten you sideways with this world and its systems? That ought to be true for us. Now, the application here gets real complex, guys, and we're going to hit some of this next week. Because many Christians have taken two courses of action that are not in line with what Christ, Christ commands here. And we're all probably guilty of, this, of these in some way. What a lot of Christians do when they recognize that they're not on team world anymore, not they're on team Jesus, they begin to experience opposition from the world, then what we do is we retreat from the world. We just go and hang around people like us. And we'll form an exclusive, comfortable, holy huddle and we'll no longer interact with that evil, opposing world that we came out of. And we start to act self-righteous as if we're better than you. We know better. We don't like you. We don't want to see you. We'll be over here hanging out together with all of our Christian friends. And if you want in, you'll have to crash in, break in. We're keeping ourselves from you. And that's a total disregard of Christ's call that we bear fruit. Because how are we going to bear fruit? How are we going to make disciples if we don't have any friends that don't know Jesus? This is why becoming a monk is not a good idea. In case any of you were pondering that. This is why cloisters and cloistering yourself is not a good idea. Oh, there's so much that I could say, and undoubtedly I'm being misunderstood. We're trying to remember that we were once lost in rebellion against King Jesus, and now in union with him, we're working hard. We're actively seeking to bring others into loving union with him too. We're working hard to bring our neighbors, our family members, our co-workers. We're working, we're working hard to go to the nations, to bring people who don't know Jesus onto the team, to tell them about the love of Christ, to spread the good news. So that's one thing we do, one temptation we do in applying this. We seek to separate ourselves from the world. The other temptation that I think that is not in accordance with God is we actually become rude and obnoxious and self-righteous toward the world. That's next week. I know I'll get some of you here for that. But we're asking, is grace bearing fruit in your life? Is it bearing fruit in your life? Are you experiencing any sense of getting sideways with the world? Any sense of rejection? Any sense of resistance from this world system? You ought to be experiencing that if you're truly in Christ. If you're bearing fruit, Jesus says we're going to be face obstacles. Christianity shows its true greatness when it's hated by the world. 
Go home and think about that. That's what Jesus is saying here. Christianity is going to show its truest greatness when it's hated by the world. And I think there's a lot for us to learn here. Maybe we'll tackle some of this next week because I want to move to the close of this sermon. But I will say this. I think that we as Christians for the last 25, 30 years have had it fairly easy in the context where we've been Christians. We've had it easy because in many ways the world kind of went along with our values and our our system. But the United States, like many other countries, is becoming an increasingly secularized society and we're finding ourselves more sideways with the world than we did before and that's making for some really uncomfortable Christians. It's almost like you've gotten surprised and Jesus said you shouldn't be surprised by that it is not going to be easy I'm looking at the next generation it is not going to be easy for you guys to follow Jesus not in this world it was easier for the grandparents out here I'm telling you it was easier for you doesn't mean it was easy I'm saying it was easier for you than the world that these kids are growing up in You turn your TV on. You watch the commercials. You see the messages that are being sent. These kids are going to grow up. If they're going to follow Jesus, they are going to be real close to Jesus, maybe closer than you were, because they're going to deal with the opposition that the world has for anyone who says, I'm with Team Jesus. You praying for them? Are we praying? Are we asking God? For grace, they can't do it apart from the Spirit of God. They can't do it apart from prayer. It's not going to be easy because the ground upon which we have been standing is shifting. If pastors are unwilling to marry those of same sex because the Supreme Court has redefined the definition of marriage, And out of conviction, because of what they believe the Bible teaches, you'll get sideways with the world. If we continue to say that we believe abortion is a moral injustice, we're going to increasingly get sideways with the world. It's inevitable. How do we deal with it? I'm going to give you two things real quick. Let me ask the band to return. How do we deal with it? Very quickly. Let's go back to Mom Cole's beautiful garden. How does she deal with it? she got to deal with it. You, only, you, you either are going to deal with the obstacles or you're not going to have a garden. You either give up or you deal with it. She can't stand idle. She's got to either face it or give it up. So two things that we have to do 
to do in order to deal with the obstacle of bearing fruit. The obstacle of bearing fruit, we got to do two things. This is the first thing that I think is so clear from this text. we got to recognize it. we got to recognize the obstacle. Jesus' intent is giving it to the disciples straight so they won't be caught off guard. He said these things to keep you from falling away. I've said these things, verse 4, so that when that hour comes, you remember that I said them to you. It's easy to start off strong with a garden. I'm, I'm killer with a garden for like the first week. I till it. I get the soil all ready, and then this little plants start to sprout up, and then I start losing track of time. The weeds pop, and then I just say, forget about it. And about two weeks later, that garden is overrun with weeds. Once I had a garden, I was actually being paid to be a gardener, but the people went away, and they weren't going to come back until the fall. By the time they got back, the, the garden was so atrocious, like the weeds were so high, that I had to get a lawnmower and a weed whacker, not a regular one. I had to put a metal blade on it to cut down everything that had grown up in that garden, and it was not a good-looking garden. You should never need a lawnmower or a weed whacker with a metal blade to deal with the weeds in your garden. If you did, you weren't doing a very vigilant job at taking care of things. But I should not get caught off guard when weeds grow in the garden. We should not get caught off guard when we experience obstacles for bearing fruit for Jesus. We should not be caught off guard. We should recognize this. Is living for Jesus hard? That's okay. Just recognize it. Why? Because Jesus said it's going to be hard. Just recognize it. The second thing we got to do is more than recognize it, we got to embrace it. We got to embrace the adversity of being disciples for Jesus. Embrace the obstacle. Samuel Rutherford, he says this, God has called you to Christ's side, and the wind is now in Christ's face in this land, and since you are with him, you cannot expect the sheltered or the sunny side of the hill. A lot of us are expecting the sunny side, sheltered side of the hill. And Jesus is saying, the wind was in my face, and it's going to be in your face too. What's the danger of not embracing it? What's the danger of not embracing the obstacle? Jesus says it right here. He says, he told him, I have said these things to keep you from dying. No, he didn't say that. I have said these things to keep you from what? What did he say? He said that the danger here is that you'll fall away. The danger is that you'll actually embrace the obstacle and then turn away from Jesus. That's too hard. I can't grow this garden. This is too difficult. And Jesus is telling them, no, don't get caught off guard by this. I don't want you to fall away at the first opposition. I don't want you to start to realize that Christianity is hard and then give up. It's worth it. So when opposition confronts us, Brandywine Grace, we won't stumble. We won't be surprised. We won't lose heart. We won't give up. Why? Because Jesus told us that it's coming. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. Well, that's, we'll deal with that next week. Because I'm saying that a lot less than killing people has scattered the church. Imagine if somebody in this room was dead next week because of their faith in Jesus. 
I don't know anybody that's died for their faith in Christ. I don't know. Probably many of you don't know. Many people who have died for their faith in Christ. But the enemy, Satan, has wrecked churches with mask mandates. Politics. Man, this global pandemic. Talk about shaking the faith of many. Churches just dividing. This is the enemy's, it's got to be one of his greatest tactics. I haven't been alive that long, 50 years. I haven't been around that long. But this has got to be one of his best. Let's figure out a plan to get the Christians to turn against one another and eat each other and devour each other. That's got to be a good plan. We'll talk about that next week. I got a lot next week. (laughs) All right, let me just end with this. And Jairus, you can come up too. One of the greatest moments in college football was a game played in the 80s. Cal Berkeley versus Stanford. If you know anything about football, it was John Elway. If you know anything about football, he was playing for Stanford. It's a huge rival. They're playing this game, and, and Stanford comes, goes ahead. With seven seconds left, they score a touchdown, which is surely the winning touchdown. There is so much celebrating going on that the fans, that they still have to kick the ball. So Stanford kicks the ball. They just squib kick it. They just, they just kick it out like 15, 20 yards because they know the game's over. The fans are on the field. The band has come down on to the field. The game is over. The band is on the field. Cal Berkeley, one of the players, grabs the ball. Another Stanford player tries to tackle him, and he just throws the ball behind him. Another player catches it. They keep running and throwing it. Finally, this one, this Cal Berkeley player is running with the ball through the band. He's like cutting through the band. Finally gets down to the end zone. The referee has not blown it dead. The referee has not blown to play dead. The field is full of marching band fans, and this guy is running through the fans. He knocks the guy over with the tuba. Boom! Knocks him, knocks him over, scores a touchdown. They win the game. What's the point? Great story, Kenny. What's the point? The point is this. In Jesus' hour of the cross, he seemed to be suffering his greatest defeat, but he was in actuality winning his greatest victory. So it's true for us. In the hour that we seem most opposed is the hour when we will win our greatest victory. And the world, with the band already on the field, singing their victory song, appears to be winning. It's actually suffering its greatest of all defeats. Jesus said it this way. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world.